So hey everybody, welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. And we're in studio today with Channing Martinez, Director of Organizing of the Strategy Center, and Kamal Franklin with Community Movement Builders. I've known about Kamal's work for a long time, but we are very lucky that we all met through this How Europe Underdeveloped Africa amazing initiative by the Walter Rodney Foundation and the event that we did on February 17th, which is up on Haymarket's YouTube channel, a two and a half hour program called How Europe Undeveloped Africa, the genius of Walter Rodney. And I'm going to add four organizers because one of the things that was very unique about it is everybody there was an organizer talking about the impact of Walter Rodney and what we could do today. So Kamal, I've, of course, we've been talking for a while now. I've seen your excellent website. It starts out saying, protect the Black community, stop gentrification. And as I go through your site, it sounds like, except we could change a few things, the two organizations would have a pretty similar concept. So my first question is, how did you get radicalized, revolutionized? Where were you originally at one place? And where was the first leap? So my backstory is I'm born and raised in uh, Brooklyn, New York, raised by my mom, me and my sister. Uh, for the most part, we lived in two places in New York, uh, 619 Nostrand Avenue in Crown Heights and then 205 Albany Avenue, also in Crown Heights. And 205 Albany Avenue, we moved in 1977. And that's like the projects. Um, it ain't like the projects. It is the projects. So let <laughs> me. <laughs> so and, the, and I was at 10 Argyle Road across from on Caton Avenue across from Prospect Park. So, ah, so in Brooklyn, folks, in Brooklyn, folks. In Brooklyn, the BK, okay. <laughs> pre-gentrified Brooklyn. Yes. Um, so, you know, so I, I you know, like, um, I think I got politicized in a couple of stages. One was because my mom is from Charleston, South Carolina, and she would tell stories about living and growing up under Jim Crow. Um, and I used to uh, reference a story my mom told about being in a white Sony playground and amongst her friends. And she was one of the uh, slower ones. And so a cop was chasing him out and she got hit in the billy club by a cop. And she has a scar to this day from that experience. And so when my mom would tell stories about growing up in Charleston and South Carolina, uh, it really started me to look at sort of that environment, what Jim Crow was like, segregation. Um, she would talk about the civil rights movement. So it had me looking at the civil rights movement and watching old documentaries and reading some books about it. And then later on, my mom would tell me some story. My mom's a dark skinned black woman. Um, and she would tell me stories, or tell me particularly about uh, when she decided to have kids that she purposely decided to do so with lighter skinned men. Um, and so my, my sister's father, who's, she's five years older than me, her father is a light-skinned black man, and my father was a white man. Uh, and neither of us know our fathers. We didn't grow up with them. Uh, we probably couldn't point them out if we passed them walking down the street. Uh, but my mom said she did that because she thought it allowed her kids to have a, quote-unquote, better life chance in America. And she's not wrong, right? And so when you think through the idea that someone 
did that purposefully. And then, you know, there obviously might've been some love involved and, and and all that kind of stuff, but that that was a conscious choice around having kids. It kind of blows your mind. Um, and so that made me be deeper around just um, uh, race relations. Uh, I started reading a lot of Malcolm X. Um, and once you read Malcolm, there's no going back, I believe. So, you know, this is probably like in the 1980s. And so I was reading a lot of Malcolm, a lot of the speeches, um, the movie probably came out a little while after I already was sort of deep into it. Um, and then, you know, from that point on, it was really about what organizations were out there that I could join because I was on the road to being radicalized um, and, you know, reading about the, the history of the Black Power movement and all the things that happens in the six, happened in the 60s and 70s. It just made me think and read more about um, uh, how the world works, the Black community works, who controls what? Um, I'll later I'll say later really quickly that I started reading Chomsky in grad school, um, and that also was another important moment for me to really start thinking deeply about imperialism and how the U.S. approaches its form of imperialism and its sort of control over both economies and resources and people around the world. Well, that's a great opening, and you know your mom carries a lot of scars, so you know. Um, it's important that you always sort of start the narrative there. And uh, we know the whole community carries those scars and that's what we do every day, you know, is try to deal with that. Um, you did a really excellent article critiquing Manning Marable's biography of Malcolm. Uh, you had a very, why don't you tell us the title of it? Uh, I think it's the academic assassination of Malcolm, or the ivory tower assassination of Malcolm X, if I remember. Yeah. Right. And then we could add the academic assassination of our movement. Uh, but it's a terrific, by the way, I mean, thanks for sending it to me. It's a terrific article. And I want to go back to, I mean, uh, I did this article uh I do it every year. It's called uh, All Hail the Revolutionary King. And it traces my understanding, because I was in the civil rights movement at the time, that I see King and Malcolm as much more similar. I think they were both Black nationalists, which I'll make the case for. They were anti-imperialist. King had a very different tactical plan. But I thought King was a lot trying to organize white people because he felt that we're surrounded in a white settler state. And in your article, I find it very interesting that people are trying to make Malcolm less than socialist, as if socialism is the great place to be, as opposed to a black nationalist, anti-imperialist. So I, that was a terrific article. Tell us how we can get it. And then I want to ask you a question about Malcolm X. Sure. Um, and so it was one essay of several um, by a compilation book that was an answer and response to Manning Marable's book, uh, Jared Ball, and I believe uh, Todd Stevens Burroughs um, were the editors of the book. You could find it on, on Amazon. Um, and, you know, I think the, the idea behind it was obviously uh, folks have constantly, post Malcolm's assassination, uh, different folks have constantly tried to claim Malcolm and his mantle. Uh, and, and one reason it was so important is because obviously Malcolm was important during his lifetime, 
But post his assassination, with the release of the autobiography, even with, with the critiques of that, Malcolm became the fatherhood or, or spearhead of a revolutionary black nationalism, which was already burgeoning, but exploded post Malcolm's assassination. And Malcolm became somebody who was referred to constantly, uh, particularly in radical black circles, for again, his speeches and his organizing. People forget the terrific amount of organizing that Malcolm did to one, build the nation, uh, to bring anti-appealist politics internationally, to build his own organization, the organization of Afro-American unity. Um, so Malcolm was an organizer and a lecturer um, and he could organize on the streets, right? He came from the culture of the streets so he could organize in the hood where other people couldn't go. And he was an authentic, person, right? And so that was the mantle that people wanted to claim. You can think back to Lenin and what happens with dead heroes. Um, either the state tries to reclaim them or claim them and take their energy out of them, their passion, their history, their radical politics, or you have others who may be radical, but also try to claim them because it suits their own politics as opposed to the politics that the person was laying out. And I think Malcolm has several times become a victim of that, not only through um, some socialist folks who decided to denationalize Malcolm, to, de exactly. to take away Malcolm's uh, true, let's say, the essence of his work, which is to organize Black people. Uh, but this doesn't mean that Malcolm wasn't about internationalism by the time of his assassination, but still, even, even after he left the nation, he primarily was a Black nationalist who was radicalized and may at one point have been a socialist or not, may, you know, but he was tilting in that area. But he still was primarily concerned with building Black organization, building Black institutions, uh, and fighting for Black rights and Black sovereignty. Those were the essence of his character. Anybody who worked with him during that time period echoes those statements. Um, and then later on, you have Malcolm is such a powerful figure that people in the civil rights movement try to de-radicalize Malcolm um, to make him someone who fits within a narrative of a civil rights hero and or icon who can be respected and loved. And, and in some ways, some of his family members took part in this also, who could be respected and loved and put into the canon of safe civil rights leaders, as opposed to, again, the radical figure who was working with people like Che Guevara before his death around potentially sending black people from the United States to fight in African, uh, against, uh, uh, in African wars against imperialism. Uh, the Malcolm who was talking about and building uh, black gun clubs to protect black people. And again, the Malcolm who was advocating even in the final chapter of the autobiography of Malcolm X, potentially for black homeland and or for black sovereignty. So he never gave up the idea that we as a people must control our institutions and organizations. Uh, and only through doing that will we truly be on the path to liberation. Well, you know, uh, th that's one reason your article is so great. And uh, of course, we think it's great because we agree. You know, to reinforce what you're saying is that, you know, which you know very well, in 1960, Malcolm organized the, the, the Hotel Teresa Welcome to Fidel Castro in 1960. I was a very good. So he was anti-imperialist, pro-third world. Nobody wanted to touch, you know, and as they say, Fidel became a hero in Harlem. There was Malcolm and Fidel up there at the Teresa Hotel Teresa. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, I don't know if it's true, you know, by now, 
I swear I saw Malcolm on a soapbox in Harlem in 1964. And whether it's true or not, it's a good story because everybody else said that was true. You know, he would be, a, I don't know, maybe I'm on 125th in Lenox. And I think somebody was up on a, on a literal box. You know, there were a lot of people on those boxes, but I swear I saw Malcolm X. So I think it's very important, you know, come out, you know, I'm working on this book. Uh, I saw a revolution with my own eyes. The central premise of the book is my statement that there is no such thing as history. There's only the struggle over historical interpretation. And everybody can say, study Black history. It's meaningless because there's all kinds of people studying it and getting you into Obama or getting you into whatever. So I think the work you're doing, you know, among the many things you're doing is the work around historical interpretation is great. And I'm going to work to get that article out to more people because I, I really enjoyed it. Okay. So tell us about community movement builders. Why did you start it? When did you start it? And what was sort of the the space that you were trying to fill that you did not think was being filled in Atlanta at the time? I started Community Movement Builders in about 2015, and it was shortly after I left uh, the organization, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. Uh, and, you know, at one point I wasn't sure if I was going to get back involved in grassroots organizing, but, you know, it just sort of kept calling that there was more work for somebody like me to attempt to do. Uh, and the politics of it are similar to the Macbeth Grassroots Movement and similar to the idea that the, the revolutionary and radical politics of the 60s and 70s are still relevant, extremely relevant today. Um, and what makes them so relevant is that when we think about that history, as you just spoke about it, the, and how people interpret that history, when we look back at, at that history, we have to remember that the militant, the, the nationalist, the revolutionary, the radical side of our history was destroyed. It was attacked by COINTELPRO. And what was left standing was a civil rights movement that was an integrationist movement, that was a policy movement, that was a voting movement. And it's not to say that some of those things don't have a place in a larger space of movement, right. but those things became the predominant form of, of resistance or organizing and they became funded through a channel of five of, of foundations. And these organizations became 501c3s. And so those things got to continue on. But the militant part of our movement, organizations were destroyed. People were literally assassinated and killed. People were imprisoned. People were fought, made to fight against each other. So that movement was destroyed. And your enemy only destroys something when they're scared of it or when they know it's working or it can work. And so in my estimation, the role of organizations like Community Movement Builders and some others is to keep that radical tradition of anti-imperialism, of revolutionary nationalism, of working in the community to base build, to keep that alive and to keep doing it. Because in essence, to me, that is what ultimately leads to the possibilities of liberation. Um, I don't expect the United States government, whether it's reparations or anything else, to give us our liberation and or freedom. I expect the United States government to do only what it can to subdue the larger black community, to in, in, uh, integrate only parts that it can control um, and it can hold up as a sort of a shiny statue for the rest of us. But I don't expect it to do anything to liberate us because 
Why would someone who oppresses you give you your freedom and your liberation? And so for us, Community Movement Builders works in that model of organizing our programs, whether it's around organizing around gentrification or police brutality, whether or not it's the sustainability work we do of helping to keep people in their neighborhoods. It's all wrapped around a radical ethos um, that we ourselves have to be our own liberators, to quote to Leo Matikin, a former Black Panther Party member and political prisoner. So Channing, uh, so, you know, I'm one generation above Kamal, and he's one generation above you, just ballparking. So you're walking in here to try and, I mean, Chenny Martinez really is one of the finest organizers with whom I work. He ran for city council. He got 10% of the black vote in a, against a mainstream Democrat. He's trying to take on the MTA. He's doing all the work that the strategy center does. He's helping with the bus rides here. But the most important thing I think, Channing, is your interest in the ideological, political traditions that you're trying to bring into the organizing work. So my first question is, what's the challenges? Everybody can say, blah, 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 we do this, we do this. But you're an organizer out there, as we all are. What are some of the challenges when you say we want to bring black nationalists, anti-imperialist, revolutionary, militant politics into the community? We all three agree with that, but there are all three of us are also organizers. Then you have this real thing called a community that's got all these different tendencies, political interests, classes, races, even not races, but colors even, genders, and it's getting expanded, the, the multiple identities and yet we're trying to build a black united front, among other things. So how's it going out there? I think it's challenging. Um, you know, I I liken it to we're going through our own like mini backlash in many ways. Um, we have organized successfully at the LUSD for many years. And now LUSD, as an example, is implementing different policies to keep us out of the school. Now you have to sign up with the Department of Justice. Now you have to do go through this hoop and go through that hoop. We have great people in LUSD, and now we have a great base of eight students at Roosevelt High School. But it's challenging to even get access to the students, to even work with them from the bottom up to get them to the level of talking about Black nationalism and liberation. That's on the one side. On the other side, one thing I was telling one of the teachers that we have a really good relationship with is on the buses, it's it's hard right now. Because what you're seeing is years of not just neglect, but years of attacks on Black and Latinx passengers. When we first started the BRU, it was hot and popping. Everyone was really excited about how do you stand up against this corporation and stand up against the government for basically bringing uh, systematic racism that can be seen on its face? It can still be seen on its face. But after 20 years of just non-winning, non and now that the federal government has prevented us from actually taking the Metro directly to court under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, We've just seen the last 15, 20 years of attacks on the black passengers and Latinx passengers. And so what I was telling that teacher is it's hard. We are still out there. We're still going and working with elected officials and uh, talking to bus riders. But what you're seeing right now 
is the effect of those attacks. Most people on the buses and trains, they don't have uh, stable housing. They don't have stable phone service, as an example, which is a very important piece for us because we want to call you. A lot of them don't have access to computers regularly, or they don't check their emails because, you know, that's not their regular mode of communication. Um, That said, we're still raging a campaign. We have about, what, now 50 postcards. I'm I'm planning on at least collecting 500 postcard petitions to send to Holly Mitchell's office. Um, We've been meeting some great folks uh, actually at community events this time. And so as the times are changing, we're trying to figure out and experiment. How do we change with the times as well? Yeah, and I'd like to, you know, just sort of add and elaborate the, the, the great vision, which is there's radical changes in the community that I think are, which you allude to, uh, Kamau, that on one level, the black middle class was at one point a very revolutionary class. When I was involved because of segregation, their anger and exclusion was revolutionary. They were furious and hurt and degraded. And, and now the system has made certain modifications for that. And there is room. I mean, I have a, you know, I'm always dreaming up articles. So one article I'm having is, yeah, there's a million black people in prison, but don't worry, we have Jake from State Farm. So, you know, they have now created, I swear, when I watch TV, I think I'm in an all black country. It's like everybody is selling me something who's black. So on one level, you have this access for a very thin strata that's even declining and frightened. That's one thing we saw in Channing's campaign is how conservative they were. And behind that was terror. And we're good at that. We don't get scared by what people say because we know what behind what they say, they actually agree to a lot of things Channing was saying. So one thing I think is important is I call it uh, set the edge, split the room, and then move the room to you. And that's what we do. We go into, and we know how to talk to people, you know, as you're talking, you know, you people say that Kamal's got a good point. I'm not really ready to go there. But if we don't have that edge, we get pulled. And then, so that's the one thing we're trying to do. The second thing, I don't know what to do is the, and back to you on this, Kamal, because we are terrified of the, what is it, would you say, 20 years of accelerated deterioration of the Black community's class structure at the bottom. You know, it's not people, people used to have jobs, you know, they were even black people even driven out of cleaning the floor, you know, seriously, and and being domestic workers and uh, post office being, you know, diminished and, you know, all the things we all know. And as you were saying, Channing, the houselessness and despair. So on one level, you have a growing conservative black middle class, and then you have the people that we would agree with us are, I think what you said is great. I'm just reinforcing what you said, Jenny. So if those are the two contradictions, how are you dealing with them in Atlanta? Because I'm assuming we're all looking at the same country and the same I think black, we are looking at the same, same. The, same <laughs> black, the same black nation. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I think very similar struggles. I, I don't care if it's in the South or the North or the West Coast. 
Uh, one of the other things people like to do is to regionalize the struggle to a point of not understanding that our, our struggle is not a local struggle. It's a national struggle. It's not a national struggle. It's an international struggle, right? All of those things are important. So quickly, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, celebrity culture uh, is something else that's uh, that's taken us away from fighting for our own uh, our own rights or the things that we want or the things that we need. Um, the idea that you write, you can see more black folks on TV. Um, you know, people are tired because not only are they working their, their one job, but two jobs. So they're trying to figure out ways in which to pay rent or they're figuring out ways just to have a little bit of enjoyment or entertainment out of their lives because everything else is so hard. So there's a lot of things that distract people from organizing and organizing is not, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think the lessons that the establishment learned again from the uh, 60s and 70s was not to show militancy in an intelligent way on television, right? Or on the news. For the most part, you get people who are, let's say, sort of empty jackets, to be honest, or people who may say something that sounds militant, but they also are are can be characterized as buffoonish at times. And those some of those folks get way more television time than what you might consider to be a serious movement. So I think there's a lot of things in our way doesn't mean that we don't keep working, but there's a lot of things in our way, which means that it's, it's just that much harder. But, but you know, I'll say, and I ask you guys too, like I do think one of the positives of what took place, uh, you know, or what has taken place over the last close to a decade now in terms of what's now been termed sort of a Black Lives Matter sort of catch-all is that there has been times where things have caught on fire and there's been insurrections yes. in the street and masses of people have been out in the street which has had a radicalizing effect. And of course it becomes, can we capture those people in terms of organizing long-term or do they only come out when the most horrific incidents take place? Well, you're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. You can also check out we're on SoundCloud, we're on Apple, or a lot of stuff. If you go on voicesfromthefrontlines.com, you'll see the links to all the different uh, podcasts because we're going to do this once it's up, it's up. Um, what I'm getting out of this, the, the voices you're hearing, first of all, is uh, Kamal Franklin. Uh, what is your title? I saw it said founder, so that's one thing, with Community Movement Builders. What's your main title? Um, I think it depends on what audience I'm speaking to. <laughs> <laughs> Officially, I'm the executive director because we do have a 501c3. Yeah, yeah. We do raise money like anybody else. So that would be my official title. But I usually just like to go by organizer. Um, I'm not, I, you know, again, at my advanced age, I no longer consider myself the lead organizer. But, uh, you know, I help with tactics, strategies, fundraising, that kind of thing and do do whatever work I should be doing and then whatever work is assigned to me at times with fellow organizers. Well, Kamal, you know, we I'm sorry, but it's sort of some weird congruence going on here because uh, a positive one, you know, that I'm officially the director of the Labor Community Strategies and I, I still, me and Barbara LaHan signed the checks. We are a 501c3, but we don't, live like one you know it, it's it's like the right wing you know you have a it's a legal status nobody told you a non-profit has to have the politics of the non-profit world it's just a structure 
and with a group, I think, in the city, uh, along with Black Lives Matter, that for which the structure is not the primary thing. The primary thing is the politics. But the second thing that, uh, that you said is that the main thing you would call yourself is an organizer. And, um, you know, in a longer conversation, somehow the ruling class tricked me into becoming a nonprofit director. And uh, I'm just kidding. It was my choice. But one day I woke up and said, what the hell? I'm an organizer. So we went back to South LA and opened up Strategy and Soul. And when I think of myself, I walk the streets and I talk to everybody and yeah, I do the other stuff, but now I'm back being an organizer. And I think that one thing I'm getting out of this is, you know, the Strategy Center has initiated this national leadership school for strategic organizing. And one of the biggest things we're doing is organizing what we call the Organizers Exchange, which is what this is right now. And I know it's a spoiler alert that we're talking about having people come from community movement builders to LA, which the invitation is hereby given. We'd love you to come. And the best thing is for organizers to sit around and talk. You know, I don't know, how are you dealing with this? What is the problem here? You know, uh, I'll come back to that more, but I just want to say that this is reminding me of an organizer's exchange as opposed to an ideologue exchange. So back to you, Kamau, I think the central question for all of us is given these anti-imperialist, black nationalist, pan-Africanist politics, and yet the urgent needs of the community. And I, I think you're doing great work around, I've been reading your website a lot. So great work around uh, building new institutions like you tell people about that. But focus on, it seems like you're growing. Yeah. I mean, we are a growing organization. Um, our membership numbers are up. Um, our support numbers are up. Financially, we're getting more money uh, than we probably ever have before. By no means a huge organization, but we are growing as a, as a, as a group. Um, we've made the right enemies, uh, which are mostly city officials and gentrifiers. <laughs> So right. we're proud of that. You know, we don't we get uh, we don't we don't get like positive uh, profiles of our of us as an organization, but usually it's mixed in there with some pros and against. So in that way, I think you know we're steady, holding firm on our politics. Uh, but I you know I think there's something that you said earlier that we should all talk about that you said in jest, but and really it's not. So it's it's a reality about being tricked in terms of being a. A director of a nonprofit, right? That's right. So I think these structures are purposely put in front of us because um, you know we spend so much time trying to raise money, and who do we raise money from? People who are rich, people who are part of the bourgeois, and they give money to foundations, and those foundations give it back out. And not all, but a lot of those foundations have limits on what they'll give and when they'll give, and how they try to kind of curve you into a certain box. So I think all of that is important when we talk about sort of the um, uh, the efficacy of organizing today, today, how militant we are, how radical we are, uh, what we can get away with. Because I think all of that is important for us to continually diagnose and talk about, because I think it's very easy for all for organizations, even those who have radical spirits or histories to fall into a certain category or box unless we continually have, like you said, these exchanges and discussions, folks who push us 
uh, to continue to stay as radicalized as possible. Yeah, and you know, the joke was on me. It was a serious joke. So, you know, I took it. One person, in terms of being pushed, I just realized one person who pushed me a lot was the late Fred Ho. Do you know who he is? Yes, I know Fred Ho, yeah. Fred was a good, I mean, a very close comrade. We were both in the League of Revolutionary Struggle. And, you know, people would say, do you know this Fred Ho? Like, he's really good. Like, he's really good. But I didn't know how good he was. And this is Fred Ho was like a baritone sax player and one of my dearest friends, by the way, uh, especially in his last years. So we'll tell you more about it. You can read my memorial for him in Counterpunch magazine shortly after he died. I did one for my friend Danny Schechter. I do a lot of memorials because... Um, I want to win the battle of historical interpretation, you know, and I want to make sure my comrades get it told right. So Fred, especially in his last years, as he was fighting stage four colon cancer, for what seemed like forever and winning, you know, I mean, it was killing him and he was killing it. It was just unbelievable. So Fred would come in the strategy center and go, this is bourgeois. You know, you got to close down the strategy center. Eric Mann, you're becoming a, you know, this is in public in Harlem, he said, you becoming uh, whatever, you know, you, you, you and your 501c3, I make my own clothes. I do everything. I don't do anything. I have no structure, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, Fred, if I said no cars in LA, you would say no cars in the United States. If I said no cars in the United States, you'd say no cars on Mars. You always got to be to my left. But the point was, he influenced me. That's the point. He set the edge. He moved me to the left to realize he was right, that I had put out the line, well, we're a nonprofit, blah, 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 blah. And he was saying, no, I think you're more of a nonprofit than you think. And I just realized that he had something called Scientific Soul Sessions, which was in Harlem. With some, I, I went to it in a beautiful brownstone with a very famous set of jazz musicians. And I saw about revolutionary politics, art, culture. And then we formed Strategy and Soul, doing all that. So this is a, I think there's two things I'm trying to say here. Uh, one is you want to be pushed. You need to be, we all need to be pushed. And, to, and I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at enjoying being pushed. And the second thing, you got to look in the mirror, you know, because uh, institutions have more influence on you than you think, right? I'll say two quick things. Sure, that please, one please. is, you know, our structure, we have a dual structure and our, our radical structure, our community structure is one in which we have a, a coordinating committee made up of membership so that all of us are held accountable to each That's other, right? right? So uh, that structure is probably far more important to us than the nonprofit structure, but we do it for that reason. Um, and then two, uh, you know, similarly to you, like this folks in the organization, anytime I get too cozy with wanting to talk to an elected official um, or go to, or, you know, like, oh, let's, let's see if we can strategize, whatever, you know, I get my coat pulled by folks who are younger than me and, and, you know, you know, going through some of the same sort of um, uh, uh, ideas of like exploring militant politics or radical politics. 
and saying, you know, go so far, but but not no further, right? So I, I think that's extremely important, what you said, uh, to make sure it's not always that somebody who's the most militant is always the most correct. But right. if you don't have the, the at least that that grouping of, of ideas within a contained space that allows you to sort of check when when folks want to get too bourgeois or or want to use the money to do um, pay themselves hundred thousand dollars salaries or to take vacations that that uh, to Hawaii and all that kind of stuff on 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 movement money, then you you know you got to really start to to think about what you're doing. So yeah, I I, uh, I, I didn't know Fred well, but I knew of Fred because he was an integral part of movement politics in yes. New York yes. during the time I was in New York. So yeah. Well, this is wonderful. You know, I'm looking forward to, to everybody listening here. I mean, we are very fortunate. We are going to do the transcript of this as well, because this is very rich. And um, uh, so just to know, we're going to go to Kamal first and you next, Jenny. I, want to, I always focus on the problems. You know, I have a thing where I say, all the best organizers uh, are always worried. They don't come in, foundations want to say, what's your victory, victory? What the hell, that? the country's going fascist. What victory do you want, you know? But we're good at that, by the way. We are really good at speaking truth to foundations who appreciate it. That's a lesson that we have the only one, or we just say, oh, that's not what we're doing. We win victories more than most people, but we're not celebratory, you know, I hate that culture. So what's the biggest challenge to you right now what are you up against of the many challenges what's the one you're most grappling with and then secondly in the same answer what's your biggest sense of opportunity i mean i think the biggest challenge is during this time something Shannon kind of alluded to earlier during this time in history that we have how do we hold together a radical organization um again which the whole ideal of it is that most of us won't get paid it's going to be that you join based on ideology. How do we persuade people? How do we build movement that um, excites people enough to have them stick around long term as opposed to coming in, checking it out or having little squabbles? So I think, you know, the challenge is not to stay too small. The challenge is to grow. That's right. And I think the opportunity uh, that we have is that, you know, we've we've come to a place where we've you know, have these different programs and this different work we do in a community. We own some land. And so the opportunity for us is to really build some of that out so that we can show folks what alternative institutions look like. Um, and that's both a challenge and an opportunity. I think if we can show people modes of economic operations outside of capitalism that are obviously functioning within capitalism, but have a different ethos and way in which it operates in terms of our cooperatives, a socialist politic, let's say, yeah. then I think that's an opportunity that a lot of us around the country are trying to jump on and figure out. But I do think we as community movement builders are moving closer to realizing that than we've ever been before. And so I think in the next couple of years, that could be really exciting for us. The voice you're hearing again is Kamal Franklin of Community Movement Builders in Atlanta. And Channing, I want to change the question a little bit because based on what Kamal just said, why don't you talk about, you've been the one who's been most theorizing, building a machine to take on the system. Uh, we do have, why don't you tell us a little bit about strategy on soul and what you're trying to do with it? Well, 
first of all, I, I like a lot of what you said, and it's it's the same thinking we had around strategy. And so, how do we physically represent all of the work that we're doing? First thing is, it a physical community center? We don't necessarily offer services, but people come in looking for services, and we direct them to a lot of different services. So it has a theater, a uh, hundred-person uh, surround sound Dolby theater uh, with DCP projection, uh, which is digital cinema package projection, um, meaning the films come on a uh, on a hard drive. We have a bookstore. We're trying to build the 40 most important books to read in a lifetime to become a successful organizer. For So everything from Playbook for Progressives to How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, Black Bolshevik, Black Reconstruction in America, um, Audre Lorde's uh, Sister Song, um, a bunch of different books. Um, and that is the space that we actually open every weekend on Saturdays. Um, and we put out plants, um, we put out uh, used clothes that are only literally a penny. Um, so a lot of folks come by and get a lot of clothes, especially houseless folks that are just around. Um, they come and get clothes from us. Um, Next door to that, we have the Fight for the Soul Cities and the Bus Riders Union uh, Community Office, which is the main office we operate out of Monday through Saturday. Um, and so that's where I and Emily Zamora and Tammy Cardona Sambis, Barbara Lott Holland, and even Eric um, does a lot of our strategizing and organizing around the campaigns. Um, we will we will also use that space to bring students in from Augustus Hawkins and Roosevelt High School to do activities at our office. Um, and around the corner, we have uh, quite it's a little bit of a dream, but it's it's there. We're gonna get there. Um, it's strategy and soul food, um, and it's a little annex space. We're trying to figure out how to make it happen effectively, but. Um, for if you've ever been to LA, on the corner of King and Crenshaw, there's a Krispy Kremes. Um, there used to be a Louisiana soul food um, that actually had on their window, and I kid you not, we use MSG. They closed down. <laughs> I know. Um, on the other corner, other two corners are the Baldwin Hills Mall, um, which, you know, is. Uh, it's an operating mall, but it's not doing so great, right? Um, and so there is no access to healthy food on that corner, as an example. And so the idea is to figure out how do we uh, best fit into a movement around food. Um, and so, yeah, that's a strategy in Seoul in a nutshell. Yeah, every time I hear it, it's really beautiful. I mean, I think one of the things that when you all come to L.A., is I know you have a community gardens. I think we want to, you know, talk about, let's talk about strategy and soul food. Let's talk about, you know, we have a thing we call addressing the totality of urban life and the totality of black life. And that is to say it's a whole human being with psychological problems, physical problems, food problems, you know, and we'd like to be able to provide as much as possible for people to come in and say, I just saw a great film. And I got, as you say, I got a reference to some community service I didn't know about. And I read a great book and I, so we have, we've had almost five years of that space with nothing but a name, but that's a hell of a good name. So 
we'd like your advice. I mean it. And some of the people you bring, maybe we could use that time to think through how to make strategy on soul food and other things come to life. Um, I want to tie up and, and uh, come on, you get the last word. Um, for me, it's been a wonderful experience, both meeting you directly, Kamau, and I think the whole, the whole how Europe undeveloped Africa experienced the connection with Walter Rodney, which we'll talk about on the next show. I have not been so changed by, I mean, I was on the Audible and it was just tearing me up and making me even more angry and more revolutionary. I mean it. It's one of the greatest books of all time by far. And I'll put that up with Black Reconstruction America and what is to be done, and not that many others uh, in the in the pantheon. So I think what I'm trying to say is that this has been a period of tremendous growth for me, that reading Rodney pushed me, because the guy's a genius. So you're trying to read a genius, and he's pulling you even more in the direction of where he's going. I thought your presentation was really great, Kamal. I'm wondering to this is on the Walter Rodney Symposium, and you're certainly careful, but implied critique of too much academic uh, co-optation of revolutionary ideas. And uh, I just want to say this will be hopefully the first of several or many shows we can do together, and you get the last word. Well, I wanted to thank both of you for having me on and for initiating the conversation Again, Eric, I've known of your work for a very long time and of the Strategy Center of a very long time. So it's always a pleasure to meet fellow travelers, people with more experience, uh, people who've been there during times of highs and lows of what's happening out in the street. So I appreciate the, the conversation that we have had and that we will continue to have. Um, and I think it's extremely important for, again, organizations like ours to figure out ways to work closer together, to build unity, to build camaraderie, um, because there are big institutions out there that want to put up other groups as the leadership of the larger black community. Um, and usually that means joining in with liberal democratic forces. Um, and as I like to say, you know, I think the democratic party is where mass movements go to die. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's a pleasure to meet fellow radical travelers. So, yeah. Thank you. So, hey, everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. This is, of course, running every Tuesday at 3 at the normal time of Voices. But we also have a podcast, which means you can listen to it in the middle of the night or forever. And we want you to and tell your friends about Voices. So you go on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. First of all, register while you're up there. And all the links to the podcast are up there. So the commentary I want to make is on the Ukraine, and I'm going to try to write something about this, but you know me, I'm always working on some article. This is heartbreaking to me. It's called Working Out Your Political Line. Not right or wrong, but what are your demands? What are you asking for? 
And how do you assess the situation? So if you take it out of context, which is some legitimacy, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. In my opinion, it's totally wrong. Russia has some legitimate security challenges from NATO that are beyond legitimate. I'll come to that in a minute. But they're now when they're killing people. They're now when they're bombing people. I was hoping for, and still hoping for, a Russia-China block to stand up to the United States. I believe in that. I think what Vladimir Putin did sets that back a lot. It's putting pressure on China. But let's start again. He's murdering people in the Ukraine. And this, because of his power against the Ukraine, even though the Ukraine is significantly supported by NATO, he could have negotiated a lot more of his objectives, specifically that the Ukraine does not join NATO. But once one country invades another, it's not equal. And the United States should know that because they invade everybody. So the second thing I want to say before we get to the larger context is the Soviet Union, which I thought overall was a wonderful country, it began its downfall in 1956 when it invaded Hungary. Hungary was a communist state that was part of the Warsaw Bloc. And the Russians brought tanks into Hungary because the people of Hungary wanted what was called socialism with a human faith. They were not trying to bring in capitalism. They really believed in socialism, but they didn't want the hard state socialism that the communists were carrying out in, in uh, Eastern Europe. Once the Soviet Union invaded uh, Hungary, it lost a tremendous amount of moral authority in the world. But it sort of got away with it for a while. In 1968, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia was a communist state, its ally. Again, the Soviet Union said, we don't like your government. Even though it's a communist party, we don't like this government. We think it's soft on capitalism. It's moving towards markets. So what happened to self-determination? of individual socialist states. Russia and the Soviet Union, I should say, in both 56 and in 68 violated the sovereignty of first Hungary and then Czechoslovakia. So what happens in 1970? China starts getting together with the United States, which was terrible against the Soviet Union. Why? I read an article that explained that when China saw the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia, and those were white people, China said, the Soviet Union doesn't like China anyway. And yes, it has some racist qualities to it. I don't trust being on the border with the Soviet Union that they will not invade China. So let me get in essentially an alliance with the United States against China. So for the Soviet Union was on my side and I was on their side. But when somebody on your side does something really, really wrong, you can't just justify it. You can't just say this happened, that happened, even though I'm going to get to the broader problem. So I think that we have to call for not just a ceasefire, but 
Russia out of the Ukraine, withdraw. You have no legitimate territorial objectives in the Ukraine. I know you have objectives you'd like, but not by killing people. All right, so let's assume that. But what's happening in the broader context? The first thing is that Russia generally does not invade other countries. The United States does. Joe Biden is acting like the kind of white, working-class, racist, alcoholic, angry white man screaming and yelling about Russia, not negotiating with Russia, not even trying to explain to the people in the United States, listen, Russia has some legitimate security objectives here, but he can't say that because he's there to destroy Russia. So he's surrounding Russia with NATO. So he has to act like Putin is a madman, Putin is a killer. Today he's acting like we have to have war crimes trials against Putin. So let's look at the dilemma. The first dilemma, sadly, is no longer Biden and Trump. I've been doing, obviously, a lot of thinking about this. The problem fundamentally is the United States is a fascist police warfare state in which the vast majority of so-called Americans love it. They love wars. And unfortunately, not just white people. Kill those Russians, kill those Chinese. Why? Why do you think so? Because the United States has never had an atomic bomb dropped on it, as the people in Japan did. The United States did not lose 4 million people under constant bombardment, as the United States did against the people of Vietnam. The United States didn't even fight Hitler very hard. That was Russia's job, and Russia lost 26 million people. The war was fought in Europe. And when finally somebody attacked the United States on September 11th, the United States used that as an excuse to create shock and awe about Iraq, killing millions of people. And there's a million black people in prison by Biden and by Obama and by Bill and Hillary Clinton, the worst war criminals of them all. So what do we do about it? In my work, it's called You Develop a Political Line. After a whole analysis, you come up with what are the demands, because that's your political line. That's what the movement should go. So this is my political line. So number one, Russia must withdraw from the Ukraine. Not a ceasefire, because Russia has no legitimate right to violate the sovereignty of the Ukraine. Russia must leave the Ukraine. In any outstanding issues, they must negotiate as two sovereign states. But number two, NATO must get out of Europe. Because NATO was constructed, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, against the communists. It was against... Poland, and against Czechoslovakia, and against Yugoslavia, against Bulgaria, and against, uh, of course, the Soviet Union. Its intent was to invade the Soviet Union. Let's be very clear. The Soviet Union has no intention ever of invading the United States. So we must call for the end of NATO. NATO is by itself an imperialist aggressor against Russia and trying to create a military dictatorship all over Europe. Number three, the United States must withdraw from NATO. And number four, Joe Biden, I mean it, has to be heavily 
criticized for his statements that he wants to get rid of Vladimir Putin because understand what he's doing. The United States believes in what they call regime change. You don't like Fidel Castro? Kill him. You don't like Hugo Chavez? Kill him. Regime change? You don't like Patrice Lumumba? Kill him. So the United States believes in regime change, meaning now it's talking about overthrowing Russia that has nuclear weapons. I mean it in the most serious way. Joe Biden is both mentally unstable and politically unstable. And you phony Democrats out there who go, yeah, but, yeah, but, it's time to realize that the main danger is not Vladimir Putin, it's Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the Democratic Party. So to summarize, Russia must withdraw from the Ukraine, NATO must dissolve, the United States must pull out of NATO, and we need to bring war crimes charges against Joe Biden for the mass murders he's not carrying out in Afghanistan by withdrawing their entire economic framework and for the imprisonment of one million black people in the United States. As Dr. King said, the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, and I challenge liberal Democrats, stop talking about Social Security for all and a Green New Deal and stand up to the warmongering Democrats. And now, the end is near. Well, everybody, this is Eric Mann. You've been on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Not a surprise, actually, that we're with Kamal uh, Franklin of Community Movement Builders. How's that for? And then, of course, Hubert Channing Martinez, one of the really fine community movement builders himself. So we're going to leave you with this, that um, as the Democrats are about to move towards a catastrophic loss in the midterms, and as Joe Biden is talking about bringing up Russia for war crimes, when there's a million black people in the United States, let's all work to bring up Joe Biden on charges of war crimes. And with that, you know I always leave you at the edge. I say it again, and I always say it, it never gets all, all power to the people. I did what I had to do And saw it through Without exemption I planned each chart of course Each careful footstep along the byway